you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalm 73. If you need a Bible, there are some available on the table in the back, or the text is also printed in its entirety, the next couple pages of the bulletin. Uh, We just sang a version of Psalm 73 that comes from the 1912 Psalter. It's one that we've sung before. Uh, We usually don't sing the whole thing. We usually cut out a couple of the verses, um, which may be why it seemed like it went on forever and ever. Sorry. (laughs) There's a lot lot to Psalm 73, and it's a great version of it, I think. Um, The lyrics are a really good uh, sort of uh, rhyming interpretation of what's happening in the uh, psalm. And and so now we're going to read the psalm and consider it together, and then we're going to sing another version of it from another psalter. So um, so we're really going to drill this psalm into our heads this morning, which is probably useful. This is the kind of thing you want to do with uh, little children, that, or that you have to do with little children uh, a lot of times. Uh, we can use the constant reminder of what this psalm is about. I say that because this psalm really does remind me of, um, of little kids complaining, it's not fair, which they do all the time, right? It's not fair. It's not fair. Why does she get a bigger scoop of ice cream? It's not fair. Why does he get an extra mini marshmallow in his hot chocolate? Um, you know, it's not fair. Right? That's a common theme for children. Envy and self-pity are aspects of this. Uh, it's, it's, these, aren't, these aren't really learned behaviors. They're innate to us. They're natural tendencies that we have as uh, self-centered people, as sinners in our sinful nature, our default state is to, to say things like, it's not fair. Um, and this psalm is a confession of that. It's a confession of a specific kind of covetousness. So you can see uh, you're not supposed to covet anything that belongs to your neighbor um, in the, the 10th commandment that you read in Exodus 20. And so this psalm is a confession of a kind of a covetousness, an envy. And the one who prays this psalm wrestles through this confession and, uh, and with faith in Christ, with faith in God, uh, wrestles through it to the only real alternative, which is contentedness in God. Covetousness and envy, uh, the, only, the only real good alternative is contentedness in God, which is a fantastic alternative to covetousness. We really do have plenty of reason to be content in God. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning from Psalm 73. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, if we're going to hear your word and consider it how you would want us to, uh, you're going to have to overcome some things inside of our hearts and and transform our minds. And you're going to have to do that work that only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray for his help now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak, mal- speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. 
Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Christians uh, seem to have the same struggle with uh, the psalmist, Asaph. Um, We have this perennial problem of wandering eyes. We quite easily and often take our eyes off of Jesus, where we're supposed to have our eyes fixed for all of life. And we start considering how the grass is a little greener, just over there, just over there. It's a little greener over there. And we look around at the lives of those unbelievers who have more than we do, which is sort of just the point of this psalm. It's the the context for this psalm. When we look around at the lives of unbelievers who have more than we do, who have easier lives than we do, who apparently enjoy more prosperity and security than we do, It's super easy for us to just start wondering, why is everything so good for them and it's so bad for me, it's so hard for me? What am I doing wrong? My life could be like that. What am I doing wrong that it's not like that? I could live like that. I could live like that if I just lived for myself. If I were entirely self-absorbed, I could have a body like that. If I didn't tithe, I could get a lot more stuff like they have, or I could eat at all the same places they eat. If I didn't care about morality at all, I sure could have a lot more fun in this world. Thoughts like that flicker through our minds, and maybe sometimes we even linger over them and give them some foothold in our minds. We start to imagine life that way. And we start to resent the lives that we have, the hardships. I mean, you notice that the psalmist doesn't say, 
When I saw the arrogant and prosperous wicked, I said to myself, boy, what a bunch of dopes. They don't have a clue. I'm sure glad I'm not like them. He doesn't say that. The psalmist doesn't condemn them. That's not his instinct. He envies them. He envies them. That's a reality for us. He thinks it isn't fair. Like the little child says, it isn't fair. Why do they have all the health and wealth? He compares himself to the wicked. And he pities himself for not getting uh, dealt a better hand in life. He thinks, if anyone deserves a good life, it's going to be people like me. Like us, it's good people. Good, honest people. Good Christians. If anyone deserves a good life, it would be people like us. He resents having kept a pure heart because it didn't pay off. And you can see very clearly, not just in the psalm theoretically, but you can see it all around the world, throughout the history of the world, in our lives, that keeping a pure heart doesn't pay off. You can see very clearly that sin does pay off. You can see it all around you. Sin pays off. That's an undisputed point in all the scriptures. Sin pays off. It pays to sin. It pays right now. If you live for yourself, you could go places. You could get stuff. If you just live for yourself. These people that the psalmist is um, envying are getting away with big, huge, blatant sins. I mean, sorry, we just can't walk through every single verse that pertains to them and explain, but that's, a, and that's what they're doing. They're getting away with big sins, blatant sins, and they're even flaunting them, uh, parading them in front of God, almost taunting Him and daring Him. What are you going to do about it? Is there any knowledge? Do you even know what's happening, God? Um, and they're eating high on the hog while we good, honest, decent folk are getting the scraps, basically, in this life. Right? That's a reality. That's a reality for the church. And so he says, behold, in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So I feel like I deserve maybe better than this. I deserve more. Maybe God owes me more, and that is a transactional view of God. It's a transactional view. It says, I do what I think he wants, and he gives me what I think is right and what I deserve, what I earned, and anything else isn't fair. It isn't right, and that's why I envy those who seem to have more than me, who seem to have a better life and easier life than me. And that's transactional language. And the psalmist, I mean, he confesses this stuff, but he catches himself before he really commits to that life, the life of the wicked. He catches himself. He says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus. But this, this kind of language will characterize my life. From now on, I'm living for myself. If I had said that, he says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Literally, it's uh, something more like the, the, the generation of your sons or the sons of your children. He says in verse 2, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's not saying that he hadn't sinned, because he has already, with his envy in his heart. 
But he lives in this place of tension that Christians know pretty well. He really did sin. He confesses that. He says, I envied the proud. He he coveted what they had. But he wasn't entirely given over to selfish pursuits. He hadn't fully committed to that life, that, that transactional view of God. He says, but when I thought, in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I mean, earlier he had said, they have, they have no apparent trouble in life. They have no pangs until death. Sort of foreshadowing where he was going. It's, he discerned their end when he went into the sanctuary of God. So the only place he could go to struggle through this mess of envy, covetousness, and a transactional view of God, the only place he could go was where? It was church. It was church. Now, Asaph, uh, the one who wrote this psalm, he wouldn't have called it church. He wouldn't have called it that. He was one of the priests uh, appointed to be a music minister, actually, by King David himself in the tabernacle, the tent. Um, And then later in Solomon's day, Uh, in the temple, and so he called it the sanctuary. It's that holy place. It's the sanctuary of God. It's the place that's characterized by God's presence dwelling with his people. That's the whole point of it. That's the main point of the sanctuary, is it's where God dwells with his people. And for us, that's the church. We're gathered around the Lord himself. Both the sanctuary in the Old Testament and the church today... um, They're not like completed versions. They're they're not the fulfillment of this idea of God dwelling with his people. They are, in a sense, representative of heaven on earth. Heaven is the place where where God is, where the Lord Jesus Christ is, and you can dwell with him, and you can see him face to face. And the new heavens and the new earth will be that place, the the ultimate place where God is dwelling with his people, where that's going to characterize everything in life. But right now, the church is representative of heaven on earth. It's humanity enjoying the special privilege of living together with God in renewed and restored relationship to God. That's the only place you can go to wrestle through your sins, your envy, your covetousness, your transactional view of God. The place where we're given the privilege of living with God and and renewed in our relationship with him. And that's exactly... That's exactly what the Christian is most interested in. That's exactly what people in the church are most interested in. It's the relationship with God. That's the main thing we care about. Relationship with God. And that is exactly what God gives to his people in the sanctuary. Where Asaph went. That's exactly the thing that God gives to his people here in the church. Where you are gathered around the Lord But it's exactly the thing that that will never be enjoyed. Never be enjoyed by those who are ultimately committed to their own self-centeredness. They aren't invincible or untouchable after all. They don't get away with sin after all. He perceives their end. And what a terrible end it is. Because God does see... And God does act. And in fact, the psalmist says that God has set them, the the wicked, the prosperous, people who are only concerned for their their own uh, comforts in their own lives, God has set them in slippery places and he makes them to fall into ruin. God allows the wicked to amass their wealth 
knowing that it has a certain gravity for sinners, wealth does. That it's a slippery slope to spiritual ruin, and they're going to fall into ruin because of their self-centeredness, because they ultimately want nothing to do with the God who is the first and the last. He's the center and he's the source of everything. And they want to have nothing to do with that one. And so the psalmist says, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And so that reminded me of the, <clears throat> the gospel reading this morning that Freddie read from Luke 12. And I'll read some of that again. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what the wicked believe. That's how they live. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say... To my soul. Soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Self-centered life. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So, Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So terrors sweep away those who lay up treasures for themselves. In the end, when your soul is required of you, when account must be given, as you stand on the brink of eternity, God will be waiting for you. God will be waiting for you. That's the, the main feature of eternity. The God who is the first and the last the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the source and the goal and the center of everything. He's the inescapable reality of eternity. He's the most real one. And someday you'll be face to face with him. And that will either mean terror for you because you have committed everything about yourself to yourself. Or it'll be glory for you because the one you meet, he's yours and you're his. Either it'll be absolute relational disintegration for you, apart from God, apart from anyone else, outer darkness. Or it will be eternal love. So C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, um, said it. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. And this, the scriptures say everywhere, this, this is determined strictly because of your relationship to God. There is no other consideration in the matter. It's determined strictly with regard to your relationship to God. Whether you find yourself on the outside in an impossible place or all the way on the inside. 
Those are the two alternatives that are presented to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Either you're on a trajectory away from the inescapable, inevitable reality of God, or you're on a path with him and a path toward him. So the psalmist says in verses 27 and 28, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. But for me, it is good to be near God. It's good to be near God. So instead of being committed to your own self-centeredness, Jesus, in the the rest of the gospel reading that Freddie read, uh, Jesus tells you to seek the kingdom of God. Pursue the kingdom of God. Commit yourself to the kingdom of God. The kingdom which, by the way, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you as a free gift. Jesus says to let your heart's true treasure be in heaven. What's, What's... What's in heaven that's so valuable, that's so precious, that's so important? It's God. It's God. His presence, His will, and His purpose. His glory. Heaven is only a place of splendor and comfort and joy because God is there. It's only a place of splendor and magnificence and delight because the Lord Jesus Christ is there. That's the only thing interesting about heaven. He is there waiting for you on the brink of eternity and he's the most real and the the inevitable one. And if he is your heart's true treasure, if he's your deepest trust, if he's your highest delight, if he's your most expansive love, then you are rich beyond the wildest dreams of those whose lives consist only in the abundance of possessions. You are rich beyond their wildest dreams. Because here, I'll let you in on a little secret. God created everything. Anything that could be counted as wealth, God made that. God owns everything he created. God is bigger than everything he created. Having God is better than having a whole bunch of things and stuff. And this is exactly the case that you do have God because he has given himself to you. So the psalmist continues in verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, and he's uh, saying nevertheless, like I'm, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So what does it mean when he says, I am continually with you? It doesn't mean necessarily that every waking moment I'm aware of God's presence. He had forgotten this when he had envied the proud, when he had scanned the horizon and seen how Apparently better it was to be out there, apart from God. He'd forgotten God. God wasn't in his thoughts. So when he says, I'm continually with you, he's not saying every waking moment I'm aware of God's presence. It means that at every moment I am with God because, for instance, in Isaiah 49 it says, He has engraved me on the palms of his hands. So I'm with him. Because I'm right there. Jesus lives forever with those marks. 
in the palms of his hands, in his feet and in his side. And those marks are you and me with him forever. That's never going to change. We might forget God, but he keeps us with himself right here. Always. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. This is appropriate for us to consider on Ascension Sunday. We know that God will receive us into glory. And the psalmist says this with confidence. It's not just that I hope, maybe, I wish, that you'll receive me into glory. It's afterward, you will receive me into glory. We know that. He'll receive us into his presence in heaven because he's already received Jesus into glory on our behalf. He's already accepted him as our substitute, as our representative, into glory. So Jesus said in the Gospels, uh, in John chapter 14, he says, If I go, and that means if I ascend into heaven, into glory, to God's right hand, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you trust that he knows what he's talking about? That he's able to do what he's talking about? That he wants to do what he's talking about? John 17, he's praying to the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me from before the foundation of the world. So God has already received the one who is our representative. That's why he came into the world, to be our representative. He's received our representative into glory. He's the one who died as our representative. He's the one who rose from the grave as our representative. The one who always bears those marks. The one we're always with. The one to whom we're united by his Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's already received him, so we know. We know. We will be with Jesus where he is in glory in the presence of God. So he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. And I don't think he's just talking about <clears throat> he's having a bad day, uh, he's feeling under the weather, feeling down, feeling de depressed or discouraged. Um, I think he's speaking very literally. There's going to come a day when my strength runs out and I die. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even after I die. If the ever-living God has promised to be mine forever, and that I would be with him continually and forever, then even though I die, yet shall I live with him forever. He's my portion. He's my inheritance. Forever. Ultimately, that means with a resurrection body, just like the Lord Jesus has this resurrection body, never to die again, in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation consummated. Everything set back right with regard to relationship with God. We will live forever with him. What else in heaven, what more on earth could you want than that? Than to live in glory with the God who is the first and the last and the alpha and the omega and the beginning and the end and the source and the goal and the center of everything. What, what else do you want than that? To, to have him as your treasure who was willing to give up everything, even his own life. He's willing to give up everything in order to give himself to you in a love that conquers death and lasts forever. Conquers your death. When he is your heart's true treasure, 
And you realize by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit that you have Him. You have Him. Nobody could take Him away from you. That He is yours forever. Well, that means real comfort. That, that means real contentment. Real security. Real pleasure. Real strength. Not like the wicked have who live for themselves. Real strength to bolster your heart right here, right now, whatever the circumstances of your life. Truly, God is good to his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to take our eyes off of you in all of your goodness, in all of your glory, to see you as our, our deepest trust and our highest delight and our most expansive love, our treasure, the treasure of our hearts. Um, even though we forget you, even though we do take our eyes off of you, we thank you that you never take your eyes off of us, that you never forget us, that we are continually with you in the marks that your son bears in heaven right now. And we thank you that because he is there, we also belong with him where he is through our union with him, through the spiritual union we have with Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we pray that you would... um, Make this not only make sense to us, make this be precious to us. Make it so that when we think of you, there's nothing in heaven we want more than you and nothing on earth that we could desire but you. We pray that you would change our hearts, make them more like the heart of Jesus Christ himself, who loves you with all of his heart, with all of his soul and mind and strength. We, we pray that we would become more like Jesus as we see to what lengths you've been willing to go to love us and to give yourself to us and for us, to make good promises to us that will last forever, to guarantee an an eternal inheritance with you. We pray that the eternal life that we find through faith in Jesus Christ would be the, uh, the most important thing to us, that we would find that it really is good for us to be near God and to proclaim your good works to all those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.